a lot of people doubt their ability to be an entrepreneur maybe because they didn't go to business school mm-hmm. or because their parents weren't entrepreneurs or something yeah. like that. That's probably the most frustrating one because they just come, entrepreneurs and founders come from absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and it's a, it's a mindset as well, right? Like it's really about like the grit of the individual, their ability to like overcome obstacles and continue to persist forward. If you have that, you can get that from various fields. It doesn't necessarily mean you need a business degree. Having a business degree can help guide you, you know, from a management standpoint of how to run a business, but that can all be learnt off the books. You know? Welcome back to this episode of the Student Founder Podcast, a platform and community that we've created around student entrepreneurship, bringing on expert investors, experts in business and student entrepreneurs to talk about their experiences in the startup world and their experiences with consulting with startups and leading them to success. I'm your host, Oliver Kukanik, PhD student by day, student founder by night. And this episode is brought to you by Rofi Labs, a software development company that I, among a group of friends and I out of the University of Melbourne have come to curate offering economical software solutions, and we can basically help you bring your MVPs to life. If this is something you'd be interested in learning more about, make sure to visit our website at rofilabs.com.au or hit me up directly on LinkedIn at Oliver Q. Kanick. Link in the description. Now, today's guest is the founder and CEO of RevLive and Trophy.io. RevLive is a software platform that enables sports leagues and associations to manage the retention, abuse prevention, and performance of match officials. And Trophy helps sport clubs tell their story and grow their sponsors. More importantly, unlike previous episodes, today's episode's guest is currently the chief entrepreneur in residence of the Melbourne Accelerator Program, helping founders become the best version of themselves in one of the world's top university accelerator programs out of the University of Melbourne. Introducing to you, Simon Murphy. Great to be here. Thanks no for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Like, um, like I said, this isn't typically something that we've done yet per, per se, but we, you know, it's a great opportunity for someone who, you know, has a student founder experience, um, but also works fundamentally with, you know, quite rudimentary startups or even startups that are kind of getting traction in order to bring them into the spotlight and bring them the success. So, starting off, all right, tell us a bit about yourself very generic question but more specifically we've read that you know you yourself have a bit of experience in the startup world you've got a bit of skin in the game starting up two companies correct so what are those companies yeah so at this point we've got one company with two products mm-hmm. so in in the sports tech space we've got RefLive, which started off as a cool and innovative way for officials to kind of record data using an apple watch or a smartwatch. Mm. And that's since grown and morphed into a SaaS platform for sports leagues to manage their officials. Mm. And we've also got Trophy, which is um, a really still still at a quite an early stage where we can basically automate sports clubs um, at any level to create professional level social media content and designs and raise more money for mm-hmm. their raise more sponsorship revenue for their sure. club. Sure. So how did you um, like what got you into the I guess startup realm? You know. How, what was your experiences that kind of like, you know, persuaded you or led you into, you know, I want to start a, you know, startup in that industry in particular? It, it, good question. I mean, going, going back when I was a kid, I was always very intrigued and curious about money and the value of things and selling things and that type of thing. Like I remember as a kid, like I was always trying to figure out how I could like 
you know, if I got like a certain amount of money for doing a chore, yeah. how could I extrapolate that out for a yeah. year? And then like, how could I like use that money type of thing? So yeah, yeah. I was always really interested in it from a young age. I grew up in regional Victoria in Ballarat. Mm-hmm. So Great it's, area. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. It's very cold in winter, but Absolutely. it's a... Um, it's not exactly a startup hub or an entrepreneurship hub. Mm, I mean, yeah, and, like I, I guess we've we've spoken to a lot of people in our community up from the country areas, and you know, typical farmers and things like that come out of those regions. So it's interesting. You know, I was I think I was speaking to Reese Miller, who actually introduced me to you, but he was telling me about um, you know the the traits of a farmer and like the resilience that you gain out of that and how it's very translational to running your own startup so it's interesting to see people like yourself and like reese coming out of these rural areas and then actually being like yeah i want to you know i think i have i have it in me to to pursue a startup so yeah definitely i, I would i would say i'm somewhere between a farmer and a city person yeah, <laughs> That's yeah a good yeah. description of that right yeah. but Look, it's it's not that regional people don't have the same skills and the same drive it's just a just a really different community like the there were, I guess the the lifestyle is is very different compared to you know Melbourne or a large city. Of course. And so I guess that was always something I was interested in. I stu- studied accounting at university, mm-hmm. and thought that you know that was probably like a safe way to kind of get involved in in commerce and learn about businesses mm. and the accounting side of things. Sure. Studied accounting at university and, and enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. So did you end up working in the field of accountancy? I, I did. Yeah. So. Yeah. I actually got my first accounting job before I'd finished my uni degree. So mm-hmm. I got my accounting job and then was studying online back. I'm not that old, but like no, I mean, back yeah, when studying what, online you finished, was... You finished in 2015. I, I was like first year uni at the time. So there's not... Yeah, well, I, start, I started in 08 because I started going to uni overseas. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah, it was eventually just sort of finished the classes online before it was kind of... Online learning was really kind of as ubiquitous as it, as it sure, is now. Sure, sure. And then, yeah, got into accounting, really d- did enjoy it, mm. but I was always found myself pretty jealous of the businesses that were on the other side of the table that we were kind of talking to and trying yeah, to learn, yeah. you know, trying to help them allocate their their capital effectively, of course. Um, understand their expenses and that type of thing. And yeah, so yeah. in 2015, that's when I kind of left my accounting role and um, enrolled at the Masters of Entrepreneurship at, at Swinburne okay. or yeah. did a grad cert, which is like one semester and... I think at that point I really fell in love with it. You mm. know, the the course texts that were prescribed for the class were things that I'd kind of already read, just like yeah, yeah, in my yeah. kind of leisure time. So, did you go from accountancy straight into entre- this entrepreneurial program before you ran your startup, or was there I, a I period did. in and between again, where you were working and dabbling in startup like realm? Not not really. Like I I did sort of try to build businesses on the side, and by build I mean kind of plan and like have an idea and try to kind of work out. Like just write about how I'd get customers and that type of thing, but sure, I never really sure. launched into anything. And I think coming from you know sort of like a working class community in a regional area, you maybe don't have the same sort of risk aversion that someone who'd grown up around you know someone you know who, who'd been around tech companies or had been in a, in a city area where you kind of ha- feel like you have a lot more options at your disposal. Yeah, yeah. I think that was for me. I was like, let me. I just want to kind of learn the nuts and bolts of entrepreneurship, and I sure, thought six sure. months at a university would yeah. be a good place to start. Absolutely, yeah. So I think like you know, unique experience coming from you know your I guess rudimentary theory that you would have learned in in your undergrad degree in accounting, and then working in that industry for a period of time. Do you think that? what you studied in university directly benefited you moving into working for like an entrepreneur program? I, I think the university study, like to be honest, I was a pretty average undergraduate mm-hmm. student, like many of us are, kind of, you know, you're only 18 yeah, and yeah, 20. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I mean, it's hard to, it's funny because we, I mean, it happens everywhere in the world, of course, but 
to know what you want to do for the rest of your life at such a young age is a ridiculous task. It's, it's absurd. It is. And so it was. I guess it was just sort of, I found that I was getting good grades in accounting at uni and it was just sort of the fastest pathway or the clearest pathway to get a, to get a, a job or get employed following yeah, yeah. uni. So yeah. look, to be honest, I wouldn't say that my university studies for accounting helped a lot hmm. but the five or six years i spent as a tax accountant did yeah, yeah right. i think that that's the, when, the when hands it, on when i see early stage companies now without any kind of finance or accounting experience managing cash flow and managing your expenses and everything can be pretty perilous and it's quite it's quite challenging to kind of learn that on the fly sure so having that background definitely helped yeah so i guess there was then an inflection point where you know, you went from the accountant, then you started working in this entrepreneurial, I guess, pro project. What was that like getting into that, you know, that, that new industry? Was it, was it a smooth transition? Did, was there a lot of friction? Was there a lot to learn? Where did you start? Oh, yeah, there was a, the learning curve was steep, but I loved it so much so quickly that it was pretty exhilarating, to be yeah, honest. Yeah. Like, I did really enjoy... I don't, I don't know. It's kind of felt. It's, it's harder to explain that first week, and I started at Swinburne, and I just remember we're kind of going around and introducing ourselves and stuff. Mm. I really did feel like I, like I really did belong in that sort of you know, entrepreneurship was really for me. Like all the class cool. content, I loved. Like I was doing night classes from Ballarat. I never missed a class. There you, know, you go. Compared yeah. to undergrad, I was you know. Yeah, so it's a good sign. Like, in the morning for like an eight o'clock class. So yeah, yeah, I was really really driven and engaged. With, with the content just because I felt like I was learning so much and I was applying a lot of the you know my ideas and concepts through this you know this curriculum absolutely yeah definitely so how did your career then transition out into I guess kind of what you're working on now so you know like you said you you kind of got into the entrepreneur like area then at some point you decided yeah I want to you know run my own startup how did you actually go about you know formulating that idea of you, you wanting to run your startup yeah, so I kind of started this workplace health business on the side as soon as I left accounting, just, you know, as something to do to kind of sink my teeth into learning, like, the basics of a business. And then I think around August of 2015, I was catching the train home from from, unit, from Swinburne to Ballarat and the league that I was playing in for soccer at the time. There was a, a, a game being played somewhere in Melbourne one of our like competitors near the top of the ladder hmm. and their result depended on sort of where we would be on the ladder and I just remember in the group message of with our team we were like trying to find the scores hmm. from this game and we couldn't find them or if they didn't post on social media and I was like man there must be an easy way to get these scores yeah surely the referee like the re- I know the referees recording this information because I was a referee at one point mm-hmm. be cool if they could record it digitally and we could get access to it and then that yeah. just was like that was just it. An, one of those moments it was yeah. it was I mean that's not really Kind of being a lot more involved now. That's not generally how ideas come about, mm. but I just became obsessed with this idea and then just sort yeah, of yeah. set on solving it for yeah. probably I mean, six months or so. There's plenty of ways to generate an idea, you know what I mean? And I think that, you know, at the, at the stage you were at when, I mean, a lot of ideas come from someone actually experiencing the problem directly, right? So, you know, whether it's, I, I think a, a typical example is like a, a front-loading washing machine or something like that. Like people didn't want to grab washing out of the top of a washing machine because it hurt their back or something like that. Then someone was like, oh, surely we can just reinvent it and like design it so it's on the side so people aren't, you know, lifting heavy materials out and instead pulling it out, right? Which reduced the burden. So you've kind of done the same thing there where you're like, oh, well, there's kind of a gap in the market. There isn't really anything like this. And then you saw opportunity, took advantage of it. And now you're here. Look, so. it was, it's definitely, 
that, that's a good way to think about the framework of ideas of like solving your own problem. But I think it runs a lot deeper. I think some people assume that they're just going to walk along the street one day and an idea is going to pop out and they're going to mm. make a billion dollars from mm. it. You know, but if you think, if I more background about me, like I've been obsessed with sports since I was like a little kid. Like yeah. I can got a lot of teams that I go for that I can't even remember sort of choosing. Mm. And so when I was younger, you guys are probably too young, but there's old Nokia phones that mm. you could request scores from like AFL games. Sure. And then you would get the text message through that would give you the update. And I was yeah. just obsessed with this when it came out. Yeah. You know, it was like, wow, you can go, because Friday night footy never used to be live. I mm. could go get my dad's phone, request a score, and it would send me a text message with the yeah. live score. Oh, okay. And I was like, damn, this is amazing. Like, yeah, yeah. how cool. Mm. And so that was kind of like, you know, that was the sort of personality type that I had. Yeah. And then having me a player and a referee, like it was, there was some sort of inherent life experience that I had that led me to be like, oh, I can combine all of these things. Sure. So it did seem obvious to me. Yeah. Um, look, the solution does sound obvious. It's not like it's a hard thing to understand. I mean, it's a good, it's a good, it's games. a good point to talk about, you know, because not every idea is the innovation. You know what I mean? It's, it's the execution that really is important, right? So a typical example I like to use is, I forget what book I was reading, but they're talking about Uber, right? And Uber being like, you know, if you think that the person who successfully executed Uber was the first person to come up with that digital platform, you'd be mistaken. It's foolish to think that because it wasn't about the idea. The idea has one part to do with it, but then the execution is everything, right? So the idea essentially isn't anything until it's acted upon, right? So it's kind of like what you're explaining. So. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a, there's a lot. It's, yeah, there's a lot more a lot more steps to it. But yeah, of course, yeah, kind, yeah, of, kind course. of on the right track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So, tell me a bit about um, Map, the Melbourne Accelerator Program. Like, what do they actually do? What do you do in that program, etc.? Yeah. So the the Melbourne Accelerator Program is a, a university accelerator um, from the University of Melbourne, mm-hmm. and what we've we're in our eleventh year this year, so it's our eleventh cohort. Yeah. This is the first year we've had 10 teams for the previous few years and at the very start I think it was was four teams in the first year and so we effectively take early stage startups or companies yeah. they apply for the program and then what happens is we provide like a five month course where mm-hmm. we just try to kind of help them achieve the I, I guess it used to be about you know kind of taking them to the idea stage and helping them sort of validate get their customers that type of thing at this point now a lot of the companies that apply are pretty are quite far along. A sure, lot of them even sure. have like some significant amounts of revenue. Yeah. But within that sort of five month intensive program, we're pairing them up with world class mentors. We've got um, an entrepreneur in residence program that I manage that work closely with the team. Hmm. And I think it's over because we've been around for eleven years. We've got a series of really significantly quite quite successful alumni companies. Yeah. We have this really amazing community that we can sort of call on to kind of assist these companies and sort of point them in the right direction where we can. I mean, it's Mm. definitely no guarantee that you'll be successful just by being in MAP, but our philosophy is that it will will definitely help you. Yeah, like you're trying, like like I said in the beginning, you're trying to make the the, the founder that you're working with the best version of themselves to, I guess, accelerate them to success, so. Yeah, absolutely, and I think the thing that's different, a little bit different about MAP is that we don't take any equity for our investment. So okay. we provide a $20,000 equity-free grant yep. to each of the teams. So 
we don't necessarily have a vested financial interest in them doing mm. well like other programs do. And there's, there's pros and cons to, to, to having that. Yeah, yeah. But for us, we are really driven to help them get the best outcome for what they want. Yeah, and, like and educate, right? Absolutely. So Look, it's, it's sometimes not pursuing the idea that they get into map with is the best outcome for that founder. Absolutely. And so we do work with them all on a case-by-case basis to understand what their goals are and how we can kind of help them achieve those goals. Definitely. I mean, it's a brilliant program because it's it's really like what it's what this industry needs in a way because it's not like I feel like a lot of, um, you know, student founders or just founders in general, they're, you know, they're like, oh, at some point they've got to start thinking about where the cash is going to come from and then they have to start thinking about how they're going to divvy up the equity. So programs like that that kind of give them the education, give them a bit of a cash injection can definitely get them like, off the ground to a position where they become a little bit more independent. They don't have to necessarily worry about those things as much. So that's pretty good. Um, I want to move on to a section kind of like talking a bit more about ideation and like coming up with the idea and actually bringing the idea to market because I'm assuming, you know, you working in the Melbourne Accelerator program would have worked with various companies or seen various stories of companies that you've seen kind of go through the ropes of the educational system and then eventually accelerate and and I guess succeed after that so I guess breaking it down a little bit maybe we can start with a simple question which is what do you think the first I mean it's it's a naive question but what do you think the first stage is of starting a business so that's just an open question (laughs) yeah well it definitely starts with I wouldn't even necessarily say an idea I think it starts with a problem what problem is there in your life, maybe maybe in your personal life, maybe in your work life, that you feel like creates unnecessary friction or prevents you from, you know, achieving some sort of outcome? Hmm. And that's you look at most of the best companies in the world. That's kind of where they've started from. Hmm. And oftentimes, you know, people will start solving a problem and they'll realize, oh, it's actually bigger than just this one little part of the problem. It affects this other kind of subset of people sure, that they've sure. not thought about. Yeah, and so trying to do whatever you can to i guess create a a, a low cost you know mvp minimum viable product mm-hmm. if it's a tech product yeah or you know just trying to do whatever whatever you can to kind of prove that by solving this problem people will give you money sure and that will be enough money that if you get a lot of them to do that you can make a lot of money uh, that's for-profit businesses obviously yeah, yeah, there's social yeah. impact companies as of course well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but for a for-profit business you yeah. want to kind of figure out you know can yeah basically can i make a lot of money Mm. is there a lot of margin to doing this you know over and over again um and look everybody has their own idea of like what is big enough of a big enough of a reason to want to do it yeah my kind of general philosophy at this stage is you should just do something that has really big potential yeah and be really ambitious because it's going to be it's going to be so hard anyway yeah you know you might as well you might as well just try and be as ambitious as you can because the the I think the the friction and the challenges to, to overcome it are going to be somewhat similar. So, you know, you might as well aim for as big an impact as you can and then, sure. you know, you can pay that impact forward if things go really well. Absolutely. So what do you think uh, some of the biggest, I guess, pitfalls are, the common pitfalls that, are, that are, you know, an entrepreneur would experience at that very rudimentary phase of, you know, idea development, finding the problem and then actually trying to, okay, well, now I need to generate a business with this idea. There's, there's quite a few. I think... People that, and look, anybody who has an idea and is willing to pursue it, I think mm. takes a lot of courage. So absolutely. I don't want to feel like I'm denigrating people. No, no, absolutely Maybe not. Yeah, Maybe yeah. A, a jumping headfirst into something in a, in a way that I would feel is probably a little ineffective. But the biggest problem that I see initially is people have this problem in their head 
and they think they need to go and build this big expensive tech mm. product without talking to one customer yeah, yeah. without trying to understand the market without trying to understand pricing or unit economics or mm. how it's going to work yeah. or even having a real kind of passion or desire to actually kind of work on this problem for what might end up being a decade yeah so I think that there's always a cheap and effective way that you can, low-cost way that you can figure out hmm. whether or not something's going to work. And that's not always true, but as a general rule, I've not seen a lot of people that have spent hundred or $200,000 on software design or software engineering come up with an amazing product that they've not talked to customers about or they've of not course. been able to kind of do like a cheaper way to do it. Of course. The other thing I would say is that a lot of people doubt their ability to be an entrepreneur maybe because they didn't go to business school mm-hmm. or because their parents weren't entrepreneurs or something yeah. like that. That's probably the most frustrating one because they just come, entrepreneurs and founders come from absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and it's a it's a mindset as well, right? Like it's really about like the grit of the individual, their ability to like overcome obstacles and continue to persist forward. If you have that, you can get that from various fields. It doesn't necessarily mean you need a business degree. Having a business degree can help guide you, you know, from a management standpoint of how to run a business, but that can all be learnt off the books, you know. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, yeah. So, um, I guess, yeah, I, I, you know, talking about this in general, it brings up the idea of making sure that an individual validates problem that they're actually trying to solve before injecting you know a bucket loads of cash i think i think validates is a hard word because it's very subjective how do you know that the the real the hard absolute hardest thing when you have an idea is being objective because Mm. you get really really excited over the small things and so you should it's your idea i don't like saying it's your baby because i think that it's just like a kind of a problematic way to think about (laughs) something that you might have to walk away from and you would hopefully never walk away from your baby yeah but in terms of the, the actual ideas, you just want to test it as rigorously as you can. I think the thing that people, not fall down on, but people don't do enough of is trying to just get people to pay for it or mm. provide a commitment to it. In Australia, everybody's so friendly generally that they'll just, you, if I put an idea in front of you and I'm like, it does this and does that and you can tell I'm clearly excited and I care about it. Mm. It really takes someone either like really quite objective to give you honest feedback sure. and they'll probably just be like oh that's awesome like great work yeah this is cool would you yeah. and even if you say would you buy it yeah I'd buy it and then you think you maybe talk to 100 people and they all say they'll buy it and then you actually build a product and then come back and say oh here's a product you can pay for it it's like well I, you know I'm not, I'm, I didn't say I am buying it hmm. That's and that's sure. a, a trick that um, you know, the, the team at, at Stripe are famous for, for using when they started is that they would just ask people if they would pay for it and if yeah. they said yes they would put a you know like a like an NFT machine in front of them or a way to actually right, take yeah, the payment yeah. that would really kind of call their <laughs> bluff yeah. and I think you know B2B and B2C there's different ways of doing it but B2C waitlist can be somewhat helpful Yeah. and then in B2B getting people to kind of pay deposits or pre-sales even if it's a bit of a discount there are ways that you can do it hmm. um, I didn't really believe it until we were actually able to do it with one of our businesses but there's always ways that you can kind of validate it really quite far before you decide to kind of go, you know, and take the plunge and actually kind of pursue the idea. Sure. So I guess, yeah, that, that's really good advice for people. I guess having the understanding of what validation is, like you said, it's an objective or can be a subjective or objective thing. But, you know, there are different there are different ways to go about, you know, actually approaching it. Now, in terms of, you know, you've got the idea, you're kind of like, you know, you've spoken to a few clients, for example, 
you see a positive light in, in, you know, down the tunnel and you're thinking, okay, now I need to kind of develop something that's functional to a, to a degree. What's your advice to people who are in that very early stage of development in order to generate that MVP or that minimum viable product that they will need to then you know, market, to then you know, get introduction to the market? This is, this is a tough one because every idea is going to have its own different challenges and some things just don't lend themselves to like a radically simple MVP type thing. I think using any sort of, particularly if you're not a software engineer or you don't mm. have any kind of coding background, yeah. trying to use as many low-code, sure. no-code tools as you can. Yeah. If you're doing B2B stuff, one of one of my old mentors, Jeremy Crable, he used to say that if you can't sell a B2B product just using like a PowerPoint, then you know mm. you, you shouldn't you, sh- you shouldn't really be doing it. And that's a pretty brilliant way to think about like as a good proxy for. You know, you sell it to a B two B customer, which you know, for which is business to business. So, say if you wanted to sell it to, you know, a large a university, is probably a hard one because it would be it would be really challenging. But maybe like a, a big business, yeah. if you can pitch them this dream solution that's going to solve all of their problems, you can get some form of commitment, you know, from them before you even build it potentially. Mm. And I think that that's you know, the similar things that you can do. Like say if you wanted to start a business where I'm surprised I've never seen an ad for this in the mail where someone will come to your house, pick up your washing, wash it, bring it back all folded and then sure, they'll kind of sure. leave it at your door. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. Good idea. Free one for anyone listening. <laughs> but you could you could test that really easily. You yeah. know, you could just say, you could just provide a, a, a you could do a, a, a mail drop in all the houses, you know, mm-hmm. in your area and say, text me. When you want your your washing done, I promise I'll pick it up and I'll return it in 24 hours. You know, just put five bucks in the basket or, you know what I mean? Like you can be really, being really resourceful and creative Mm. is the best place to start to just kind of prove that something works. Yeah, definitely. And I think that people, you know, when it comes to, you know, raising money and other things like that later down the track, Mm. people really resonate with those types of stories because it shows that you have a real drive and you think, you're able to solve problems in a creative way, which is probably one of the top, you know, founder traits that you can have. Definitely, definitely. All right, so I guess moving forward, like, what's your perspective on speed to market, right? So once, like, like you, you know, you, you spend some time maybe using some low-code platform, develop some MVP, start trialing it with real clients. In terms of speed to market and actually getting, like, you know, some ideations out there and iterations to the real market, you start putting money into marketing and things like that. What's your perspective on the importance of that? I guess it, it yeah, like all these questions, it kind of de- mm. it kind of depends a bit more on what you're doing. Sure. So it depends. Yeah, it depends on the product, depends on the market, depends mm. on who the customer is. I'm personally a bit more of a believer in you should try to sell something as soon as you can. Sure. Because you don't really learn, like that user research case I was talking about before, mm. you don't really learn until you're actually trying to sell it to people. People, that's the only time you ever get real unbiased feedback. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in, I think Reid Hoffman, the LinkedIn and founder of a few other things, I think he said something like, if you're not ashamed of your sort of first product launch, mm. then you've, you've waited too long. Or something yeah. something similar like that. Look, it's, it's hard because... You don't want to. You, there's, the flip side of that is you don't want to launch a terrible product that no one uses, and then you're wasting every marketing dollar that you spend is effectively wasting it. Mm. So it's 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 a hard one to have like a hard and fast rule on. But my personal rule is get out there and start selling sure. as quickly as you can. Yeah. Build wait lists, 
do interesting things, be really creative. Marketing dollars to get spent for most cases is like almost always too early. You should mm. always be like doing some sort of like non-scalable version of selling as early as you possibly can. Sure, yeah. Because I guess my next question was going to kind of talk about what you think the nice balance is between you know, focusing on the development of the product itself and then actually like marketing the product and getting the idea out there in, in the public. Yeah, I mean, that's just like a good founder yeah. trait, you know, yeah. is you kind of have to keep like, you know, juggling all those balls in the air um, and trying to, like yeah, at some point you do have to kind of let fires burn. Mm. It's, it's a hard one. I think, yeah, it dep- if, if, you, if you're trying to build a product that's like kind of a product-led growth opportunity where it means someone can go to your website, start a free trial, you know, sign up, start mm. paying. Yeah, you know that's the the require the the challenges for that are going to be vastly different for a B two B software solution that you're charging businesses like fifty thousand dollars a year. Sure, like that whole process is is going to be really uh, really quite different. Mm, definitely. All right, so we'll move on to talking a little bit more about you know, let's say you get to the point where you got to start raising capital. You've kind of validated or validated the idea to an extent. You've kind of got some initial MVP out, got some clients using it. Now it's time to actually get some money to expand. What are some of the, I guess, ways or conventional or non-conventional ways maybe that people go about raising capital? I mean, the conventional way is to go with either angel investing, which mm-hmm. is a combination of basically just any person who has money to invest in an early stage company, generally wealthier because it's really quite risky. Yeah, yeah. Then there's angel syndicates, which is maybe a group of people that are kind of pooling their money, and ideally, that's like one or two people that are kind of deciding where to invest, like allocations of that money. Mm. And then there, there are, look, there's other things like crowdfunding, which is like virtual. I think is really quite a, quite a good platform yeah, for that yeah. if you want to go down that route. And then there's like venture capital, which is institutional investment from yeah venture capital fund that's been raised mm. and created to invest in in early stage companies. Sure, and. They obviously have their individual risks, correct? So like, you know, if you're working with an angel investor, maybe, I mean, I don't know personally, but some angel investors may only be in it for the money, right? So, I mean, yeah, most yeah. would be, right? So no, it's, it's a, you're it's, kind of giving up equity for cash at the expense of having someone on the team who doesn't necessarily, you know, they have an invested interest in you profiting, but don't necessarily care that much about the idea at some point. I think angel investors that are only in it for the money don't last too long because sure. it's really, really hard to make money. Yeah. Especially especially when you're investing in very early stage companies where the risk that they will go out of business is quite high or that they just won't grow into a huge company. Hmm. The flip side of that is that the people that invested in Uber at the seed round hmm. made 25,000 times return on hmm. their money when it IPO'd. Yeah. So... That's a qu- quite a huge return. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. that's what ma- that's what attracts people to investing in startups. Definitely. So it, it, it depends. I think a, a huge misconception that I see in my role and even just talking to early stage founders is that everybody thinks they want to raise venture capital money because that will get you in the newspaper, that mm. will get you on you know TechCrunch, and that will yeah. be make you kind of seem cooler and popular and. That's where There's you a can, bit of marketing as well. Potentially, a bit of marketing yeah. and you can get the most investment from there. And to be fair, the funds do a really good job of promoting their founders. But mm-hmm. I guess the way that the unit economics of, of venture capital businesses work is that most businesses aren't suited to venture capital funding. Right. Like there just needs to be like as a basic kind of rule for to be like a, a venture capital backed business, you need to be able to get to 
you know, in a, a, a million dollars in revenue in the first six to 12 months mm. and then grow like triple, triple, double, double, double for the first five years. Yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty insane growth rate mm. that the unit economics of most businesses and the way that they acquire customers and the way they grow won't really align with that type of growth rate. Yeah. So I think people can kind of take it personally when you know venture capitalists won't invest or someone even tells, says that the business isn't focused on venture capital. And mm. I was probably one of those people at yeah, one point. Yeah. But the reality is they're focused on building, you know, backing unicorns because one huge company for them will be worth returning their entire fund. Whereas angel investors are more like I've invested in some companies in very small early stage, yeah, very yeah. small amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. Whereas it's more about like being being wanting to be a part of that journey for the team. Sure. Um, you know, yeah, financial success is obviously if you're investing, literally mm. what you know, that's a that is a really important component of it. But there's other things that motivate people and I think in Australia we're starting to see now when we've seen some first few big exits, particularly in tech companies or mm. ex tech employees we're starting to see that kind of giving backside and all these angel syndicates are kind of propping up other funds, people that want to see the next generation of Australian companies, not just yeah, tech companies, yeah. you know, become big and become kind of global players in their respective industries. Sure, sure. No, that's a very um, interesting perspective. Um, I wanted to ask you a question, I guess kind of taking a step back on something we were talking about previously, I forgot to ask, but I feel like a lot of people who are out there who are kind of at that, you know, introduction like you know novel stage of developing their company they have this idea of like you know getting their product out there to as many people as possible and all this stuff we kind of briefly touched on it but what are some strategies or techniques that you teach or that you know you would advise to get the first client right because i feel like that first client is always whether it's a service or a product getting that first client it means so much to the founder. It can be a motivational factor to push the student founder or the founder in general forward with the idea, but also it's one of the hardest parts of the process. Or sometimes some people get lucky, of course. But it's it's a good question, and yeah. that is probably a, a something that we definitely help with, particularly mm-hmm. for a company that's B two B focused. So they're selling to other companies. There are a lot of things that you can do, both good and bad, that will help or make it really difficult mm. to get that first sale or to get a lot of sales. Well, let's talk about it. Let's. So what are some of the bad things that they might do? What are some of the good things? I think I think for a lot of industries where you're not selling to... You, you, making you seem like a more of an established company than you are sure. rather than a startup can make people a little bit nervous. If people don't want to invest a significant amount in your product, they feel like you might be out of business next year or there's mm. no support or there's... They don't get a professional kind of feeling from you, yeah. and that's not always true. Sometimes the pain of the that the that the product can solve is so significant that they're happy to kind of overlook all those types of things. Mm. I think having a clear understanding of who the customer is and what the process is, kind of end to end. So from when you first speak to a prospective customer to kind of closing that deal, implementing the product, and kind of managing it. Mm. Even if it's the first time you the first time you've had a customer, you kind of want to talk about how that process works, like it's the hundredth time that you've done it. Right. People get nervous if you don't know how your product is going to work, or you don't know how the rollout's going to work, or you don't know kind of anything about it. You have to be like the absolute expert. You have to assure them everything's going to go well hmm. without kind of overpromising things that you can't yeah, deliver yeah. on. And I think it's just getting the right person within an organization, um, getting a right 
getting the price right is really, really hard for a lot of people. Mm. When you're early stage founder, yeah. you're really scared of no's that you kind of like, and I remember this kind of in my head, you can be in a meeting and you can be kind of like talking yourself down price-wise. Mm. You know, maybe you've gone and been like, all right, I'm you're negotiating say, with yourself. Right, you're going to go yeah. in and say, oh, this is 20 grand. And then the meeting, you're like, oh, maybe 15, maybe let's say yes to 15, maybe 12, <laughs> maybe 10, maybe two. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you kind of, the more you learn about sales, understanding the value proposition and what the kind of return on investment is for the customer, mm. really understanding that really clearly. Yeah. And, and I think being confident with it. Right? Being confident like, and just if you having know your a product and you you know you've done all your you know assessments and you know all the questions and you know all the answers that they're gonna you know for the questions, then when you're trying to pitch someone the idea and you're asking for capital or you're asking for clients to sign up, you should be confident in the price because I mean I, I don't know what the statistics are, but does a price really pay that much of an importance if the product is good absolutely not and that's what people don't realize at a certain point if they get real value from the product if it's a big organization mm. they will pay they could pay millions a year if, premium, it's, if, yeah. if it's that good yeah. and I think that that's a really really hard thing for a lot of people to kind of it is a mindset adjustment mm. and just confidently being like this is the price and this is what's included and people that try to talk you down on price or get unnecessary inclusions mm. or try to do a lot of things, they're often going to be your worst customers. Yeah. And so just being really confident, acting like you've done it before because obviously there's a point where you haven't done it before. Mm. Those those things are really important and I think like to think that that's where we've built a really great network at MAP where we can really help people. Like there's just a lot of things and a lot of, not necessarily rules, but a lot of things that will just help you, we can help with from day one. Mm. For the most part, we want to kind of, we don't want to put them into this like playbook situation where we feel like we're, you know, making them do all the things that we know will work because mm. that's not how you build an amazing company. It sure. comes from you having your own unique take on a product and your own unique take on marketing and distribution. That's what the big ones right. all do. Yeah. But it's less like, how can we stop you from making stupid mistakes? Yeah. You know what I mean? That, yeah. That's that's where we really fit into that. And sure. we, 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 see, we see good results over and over again. We get yeah, good teams absolutely, over absolutely. again. So yeah. something's working. These teams are obviously still quite capable when they come in. Yeah. Um, but I think just got a bit of a nudge and push in the right direction and we can see some pretty amazing outcomes. Definitely. So, I mean, even with the education that, you know, you, you know you're adapting people and getting them the skills they need in order to overcome, you know, obstacles and things like that. But... How, like how important is the failure? Because it is inevitable at some point that you you know you come across multiple fa- failures during the journey. Yeah, that, that's probably the most. Like, do you teach that in the program? Like the importance of failure during the journey. It's it's all really contextual because you want to have the, the failure is there's 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 a difference between you know someone saying no to a deal mm. because the product's not right, someone saying no because you made a few mistakes. Mm. Or there's a, the the failure of the business not working, yeah. and I think that that's something I've tried to really instill the last couple of years when I've been involved is that it's actually not that big of a deal when the business or the startup fails. Mm. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's failed because you've learned so much. You this this knowledge compounds, your network compounds. Mm. You can take this and start the next thing. It's there's just bigger things in life. Of you course. know what I mean? I think yeah. that that's probably been the hardest thing to to have gone through myself personally and to see other people go through is when they feel like this startup is a real part of them Mm. and that when it's not doing well or it's failing, that that's a huge reflection on them. Sure. You know, we talk about the mental health of founders Mm. um, is, 
you know, a lot of founders have mental health problems because yeah. of that. You know, yeah. the well, stress, there's a lot of pressure. the stress, yeah. the yeah. burden, the pressure, yeah. you know, it all can kind of overweigh you and it can be really, you know, paralyzing when you've got to make decisions and solve problems every day. I think just having a very healthy separation from, hey, I can walk away from this tomorrow. Mm. I can pull the pin. Yeah. Um, my life's going to be okay. Yeah. You know? yeah, you're still course. a good, you're still, you're a good or bad person in isolation of your startup. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of billionaires that we know who, you know, are pretty miserable. So yeah, there's, course, there's yeah. no, there's no yeah. kind of like silver bullet to, to being happy or successful. And you can always start something else. I of think course. that's what people don't yeah, realize, that's, that's you know, that's why I don't, coming back to what I said before, that's why I don't love calling it your baby. Because mm. I think that's just like a, a baby is something that's like completely, completely different from, you know, a startup where the right thing might be for you to decide not to pursue it or for you to wind it up and, and go and do something else. Doesn't mean you're a failure. You yeah. can always do a million other things you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I forget what the, there's a psycho- psychology phrase for it, but I think it was Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He was describing exactly what you're talking about now and kind of like, this isn't the only idea that you can come up with. You can always forget that and move on. But having that skill and capacity to not let something that you did in the past, you know, affect or hold you back from what you can achieve in the future. That's a massive mindset and mentality. Absolutely. And I think I was really worried at certain points being a founder, like even to think like that, to think it's okay to fail because I was like, well, that will... I will lose gonna, my, yeah. I'll lose my edge, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll like be less motivated and I just won't be as competitive yeah. and you know, coming from like a sports background, you can never go into a game thinking, yeah, thinking you're, you're going to lose, you're gonna yeah, lose of course, right? Of course. But it's 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 kind of it's looking back now it's idiotic. Yeah. Having that mindset where it's okay to it, it actually makes you take more calculated risks yeah. because just trying to keep a business alive for an extra few years that was never going to make it. I think that was the first time I really thought about it was when somebody wrote a really great blog article. And I'm sorry, I can't remember who wrote That's it. Right. But it was like the, the worst thing that a founder can do is spend two or three years of their life working on the wrong thing. Mm. You know, that sort of, you know, pushes them off the, the path they might have otherwise gone on had yeah. they made that the tough but the right decision sure. earlier on. So I try not even to think about failure as like a binary, like, mm. you know, this is failure, this is not. Yeah. It's all contributing to you know whatever life is just so much more complicated than that absolutely yeah absolutely and yeah you can't define yourself based on those failures because they're all lessons in the end of the day as long as you're willing to learn from them as well I mean, so having a billion dollar startup doesn't make you a good person yeah well, it doesn't you know? make you successful it doesn't make you a good person you could no, be well, yeah. you could be miserable in your ferrari if you want exactly there you go all right so on a more bright note then <laughs> right um let's talk a bit about success Right and the stories of success. Right, so you yourself working for the Melbourne Accelerator Program, you would have you know surely been in contact with and worked with plenty of companies that you've seen kind of like grow exponentially since joining the program. Right, so I guess what do you have any any stories or anecdotes of uh, you know someone with you don't have to mention their name specifically, but I guess the, the archetypical traits of someone who you've seen really accelerate because of the program and because of who they are as a person. It's a great question. There's a, there's a guy KJ who was the who's the founder of a company called Delicious, which is a company that makes bacon seasoning. He oh, went wow. through Map in um, 2016, so the yeah. year before me. Yeah. So he was still in the space when I was there, and he was just the grittiest guy. Like he was mm. just so hardworking. He spent long hours at the office. He was just obsessed with kind of understanding 
like Facebook marketing and, mm. and understanding how he could you know improve his ROI and ads. Yeah, he's since I think even in that year that I first met him, he pitched on Shark Tank, and he's built this enormous business, and that came so much further after like mm. those early days when he was just working long hours. He was like first person in the office, last one to leave. Yeah. He was just obsessed with the process of getting better. I just remember rocking up in the morning thinking I got there early and I stayed there late. He's just sitting there typing away and he's on his laptop with his headphones on. Yeah, sometimes it's like even just for his own mental game has convinced himself that he's elite. You know what I mean? Like that he can do it. And, and that, you know, he may not have come from the, the most privileged background, for example, or whatever it may have been, but anybody can make themselves better with work you know, like effort, right, engage. So, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting story, but yeah, continue. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it, and that's, look, that's that's a big part of it. It's just the hard work. I think the the belief really comes and goes. And I think that's something that we've helped at Ma- helped with at MAP. Mm. We don't really, if, if, you, if you're, if you were not going to have any success without us, we're not going to kind of like make you kind of take that leap. Yeah we can point you in the right direction if you are determined to be able to do it, mm. but you have to kind of make the decision as the, as the founder. Mm. And I think that's a big thing that if, look, if I had to kind of describe the characteristics of the people that I've seen come through and have done really quite well, mm. um, regardless of that, you know, where they've gone on to do sales, they've just been really quite good at what they do. Yeah. Definitely having like a certain level of grit mm. and self-belief. Now that does wane, you can't think that you can't just have self-belief. I think that that's what people. The misconception is that you, people that are successful, just believe in themselves day in day out, mm. regardless. That's just not true. Mm. Like I've spoken, oh, there's plenty of self-doubt behind the scenes. There's plenty of, of self-doubt. Yeah. People like founders can be really fragile. Like you mm. can see an online review for your product that's one star and it's you know kicking the shit out <laughs> yeah. of what you've done, yeah. and that can you know, it can spiral you for for a day or more. Definitely. You know, we all have really bad days. I think that's a beautiful thing about having a network of founders is mm. that you can really quickly relate to another founder and what they're going through. And yeah. like, you know, it's, it's just really cool even when you meet people kind of out in the wild and they're a founder and you're a founder and you just know that they get it. Mm. Like this person really gets it. I think that that's probably the thing is that this you really, people are really kind of like drawn into this type of work this yeah. like startup founder role yeah and they come from all sorts of backgrounds you know further to what we said before yeah there's the kind of people who are kind of nerdy and entrepreneurship and tech kind of like i am but then there's also people that have amazing ideas that have kind of come so far outside of the business realm mm. and they come in and do just as well because they just have a really interesting creative perspective on things mm. a lot of people sort of ask me well what should i you know, what's the best business book? What's the best resource? Mm. To be honest, I think it's more about focusing on like, what do you really love? Learning more about other things like complex systems, learning more about philosophy, mm. learning more about things that are interested outside of business that are going to give you an interesting, different perspective pers- almost. Yeah. Pers- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. that's what I think my kind of, my kind of understanding of the way the biggest businesses get created is because a founder has some really different unique take on product mm. and then they kind of marry that up with a very unique take on on sales marketing and distribution yeah. where it's not neither it can be easily copied and both have sort of some inherent sort of virality where they can grow to, to be to be really quite massive and you can't do that by being in this little echo chamber with all these other 
tech nerds who are like, oh, I'm going to do this. And then everyone, someone starts a playbook. And then by the time it gets around to you mm-hmm. to use it, you know, it's well and truly yeah. past its use by date. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, um, you know, it was lovely having you on the podcast. I think we'll wrap it up now because I'm conscious of your time as well. But before we wrap up this episode of the podcast, I like to do a little skit with everybody where we just ask, you know, the interviewee a piece of advice that they want to leave, you know, in this in the history of the Student Founder podcast for the, you know, student founders and the entrepreneurs and people interested in business watching this episode of the podcast. So what's a bit of advice that you'd leave? Bit of advice. Look, as I said before, if you, if you can't, if you're not kind of doing what you really want to do, yeah. I think um, if you fucking quit and you should do what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Life's too short. Yeah, like absolutely. I said before, yeah. one of my rules, I'm wearing sneakers to work every day. Yeah. Well, not every single day, but most days. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, say that. Yeah, like, you know, if what, what was the thing about the sneakers you said when I met you today? Oh, it's just one of my, I just want to wear sneakers to work every day. Yeah. You know? And if you don't, you don't want to be at work. Yeah, if someone's <laughs> like, you can't do that every day, then I'm going to be like, well, I can do it because I want to do it. <laughs> yeah, there you go, there you go. So the, I guess the freedom to be creative, you know, and I guess something important as well, reduce the friction, right? So like you said, highlighting on that fact that if it's something that you really like, you really enjoy, focus, double down on it, right? Rather than, I guess, like trying to learn other things that, you know, necessarily like, you know, like when you're talking about learning complex business systems, you may not be interested in that, right? But you may have to be using the, you know, the focus in a way that will eventually benefit the business. I think philosophically, life's just too short to not do what you really want to do. Yeah. Like, I think I see a lot of people that just don't want to take risks because they're just uncertain or unknown what's going to happen. And you only get one chance at living. Mm. So you might as well do what you want to do. There's like the risk of what you think is going to happen is actually not as bad as what will. And I think you kind of step into that uncertainty and that unknown and that's where good things happen. That's Absolutely. that's really where the, the magic happens. There you go. All right. So that was Simon Murphy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk and educate you know, the, the, the founders watching this episode of the podcast. So, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. <laughs> no worries. All right. So that was that episode of the Student Founder Podcast. If you liked it, make sure to like and subscribe. Links will be in the description. Follow us on all social media platforms. Links will be in the description. Just to reiterate and note again, this episode was brought to you by a company that I founded called Rofi Labs, which helped bring the most fashionable startups to life, essentially. We want to help you develop your software and tech whether you're at the MVP stage or looking to hire more developers on your team, make sure to hit us up at rofilabs.com.au or directly on LinkedIn at Oliver Kukanik. Thank you so much for watching this episode. Stay grindy.